This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Today, some of our favorite interviews about food. Coming up, what does Boulder's Kimball Musk mean when he talks about real food? And later, what Coors Field does with leftover hot dogs. First, though, throughout U.S. history, African Americans have cooked for presidents and run their households. Denver author Adrian Miller identified at least 150 black culinary professionals who served the nation's chief executives and their families. Some were forced to. Others were so trusted they were asked for political advice. Miller's book is called The President's Kitchen Cabinet. We spoke in February. One personality I think really stands out in this book, Zephyr Wright. Tell us about Zephyr Wright. Well, Zephyr Wright, of all the cooks that I identified, if I could just meet one and sit down and have a meal, she's the one. So she was the private cook for Lyndon Johnson, and she cooked for the Johnsons before he actually became a politician. And um, a lot of people credit her food to helping his rise in politics because he, you know, the nature of things was to entertain and get to know people at, and bring them over to your house. And so they, she would make these wonderful southern dinners and was well known for the food that she created. But she encapsulates a lot of the themes of my books because she was a culinary artist, well celebrated. She was a family confidant. When uh, Johnson was inaugurated, she sat in the inauguration box with the family. And then um, she was like a civil rights advocate because Johnson would use her Jim Crow experiences to lobby for the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Experiences like what? Well, the family would drive back and forth from Texas to Washington, D.C. And when she went along with the family, she couldn't go to the bathroom with them. At the same time, she could not eat with them in the same places. It got so bad that she finally refused to make the trip. And so Johnson would say uh, to members of Congress, it's a shame that the president's cook has to experience this. So obviously, after the assassination of President Kennedy, she, as Johnson did, rose uh, to prominence in the White House. Yes, yes. But there was a holdover chef from the Kennedy administration, a French chef named René Verdon. Now, he was making French food, which LBJ and the Johnsons weren't feeling. So they would ask him to make Tex-Mex <laughs> and Southern food. And he would call chili con queso, you know, that cheese. He would call that chili concrete. And so they would ask him to make, you know, nachos and other things. And when he would mess it up, they'd say, oh, go talk to Zephyr and have her teach you how to do it. It got so bad that Verdon finally quit. I see. Yeah. Boy, that, that is a symbol of the difference between the Kennedy and the Johnson administrations, if there, if there was one. Yeah. Are there other White House servants, and by that I mean cooks and stewards, that's another position, who became politically active that way in, in their advice? Yeah. One of the most remarkable stories is a woman named Lizzie McDuffie. Uh, now, she was actually a maid, but she would help out with food, especially when President Roosevelt would travel. That's who she worked for, President Franklin Roosevelt. In the 1936 election, she actually went on the stump and uh, stumped for him in cities with a large African-American population. And so she was so successful. She went to about eight cities that after he won that 1936 election, Roosevelt invites her to the Oval Office and personally thanks her. Now, the Hatch Act existed at that time, which forbid, you know, forbade um, White House employees from you know, campaigning and things like that. But she never got pressed on it. I see. And one way that uh, servants in the White House wind up helping politically is – if there is a state dinner or something like that on short notice, right? So where food becomes something of an of an elixir of diplomacy, they have to act. Right. I think of, of that, I think in the Johnson administration in which he would call dinners at the last minute. Right. And here we get Zephyr Wright again, and we just see the genius of Zephyr Wright. So if he would show up at the last minute with a large party and uh -huh. demand a dinner, what she would do is she would just start sending out a bunch of liquor. 
so people wouldn't think <laughs> about the food, and then she would serve up whatever was needed. That bought her some time, oh, yeah. and it kept people entertained. And no one complained, believe it or not. Why the focus on African Americans in particular? Give us some context into the role they have played over time. Yeah. Well, I think it's simply because African Americans have dominated um, the cooking positions in the White House uh, throughout history. And I've identified 150 people, as you noticed, and I know I'm just scratching the surface. And they've um, played a lot of different roles. And over time, they have mirrored the status of African Americans in the broader society. A lot of our presidents were slaveholders. So we had a lot of enslaved cooks in the White House. And then we see people as free laborers engaging in White House cooking. Now, at that time, for much of the 18th and 19th century, cooking and servitude were pretty much the only jobs that African-Americans could enter into without getting a lot of white backlash. Mm. And so a lot of people chose that profession and excelled at it. So it's a microcosm in many ways of what's happening nationally. And we really should talk about the nation's first president, George Washington, who had several African-Americans in service. And one of them named Francis, was a steward and ran the household, managing the budget, ordering the food, supervising other employees. Another was a cook named Hercules, and both were Washington's slaves. Well, Francis was a free man, actually. So ah. Francis was a biracial man born in Haiti who immigrants, uh, immigrates to New York probably in the 1750s, runs a business and a one place called Francis Tavern, which a replica exists to this day. So Washington would come over and grub at his place. And he loved his food so much that when he became president, he said, I want you to manage my kitchen. I see. And Hercules was brought from Mount Vernon to run the uh, residence in Philadelphia. Uh, the residence was there before the White House was actually constructed. Right. The interesting thing about that is Philad- uh, Pennsylvania had a law that said any enslaved person who was on Pennsylvania soil for more than six months was automatically free. So the way that Washington got around that is just about the time the six-month deadline would toll, he would pack up all of his enslaved people, send them back to Mount Vernon, have them stay there for a few weeks, and then bring them back to start the clock anew. Resetting the clock. Yeah. And that was true for this cook named Hercules, who, yes. who was a slave. Yes. What did that make you think of George Washington? Did it change your impression of him? Uh, well, no, I was fairly, fairly um, um, well-versed in his history uh-huh. with enslaved people. So it just reinforced the things that I knew. And I know it's a complicated situation, but uh, I just like, man, that's kind of messed up. Yeah. To do that? To send him out of state to reset the calendar. Yeah. Any sense of who Hercules was? Yeah. So we know that he was a very temperamental chef. He probably would fit in well in a lot of the cooking shows we see on TV today. But um, very accomplished. Um, We know that he was a rather stocky man, kind of a large man, but um, just very good at cooking. And I think later escaped. Yes. On Washington's 65th birthday, he runs away. And he's only seen one time after that. And there's a, a portrait of Washington of, of Hercules uh, sitting in a museum in Spain, and the portrait was painted by Gilbert Stuart, the same guy who painted that iconic portrait of George Washington. It says, "A cook for George Washington." And you look at the clothing in that painting, and it looks like the clothing a chef in Europe would wear at that time, not one in America. So we believe that he just ran overseas. Ran overseas. So that he would not be caught, I suppose, by Washington, who I think continued to look for him. Right. Washington spent a lot of time looking for him, and um, he would spare no expense to track him down. Oh. Adrian, give us some examples of foods that presidents particularly liked and brought to the White House, and therefore the people had to cook for them. (laughs) Right. So um, best example is probably Lyndon Johnson, just the the Southern and Tex-Mex that he brought. So he loved chili. 
He loved nachos. By the way, President uh, Obama loved nachos as well and guacamole. Uh, but, you know, a lot of presidents loved French food. So Jefferson definitely had French food served in the White House. So did James Monroe. And Chester Arthur, he was known as a gourmand. Uh, and so he had a lot of uh, elegant food. But then Kennedy brought a lot of New England favorites. So usually it's the food of their childhood that they bring with them. Jefferson having an interest in French cooking, I understand, brings essentially a kind of gourmet mac and cheese into the White House. Right. So in the earliest days of mac and cheese in this country, it was really wealthy Americans who would travel to Europe. They got introduced to the dish and they would bring it back. And we know that Jefferson served mac and cheese in the White House because one of the dinner guests wrote about it in his diary. He was a guy named Reverend Manassas Cutler. And he was uh, he really couldn't figure out what mac and cheese was. He thought the pasta were big onions. And so he had to ask the guy next to him, what is this dish? And he explained that it's a pasta dish from Italy. And, blah, blah, blah. and that person was Meriwether Lewis. Ah. Yeah, he was at that dinner. On- onions and cheese, that sounds awful. You mentioned several presidents who had a little trouble pushing themselves back from the table. <laughs> Their wives and staffs actually had to try to keep them on diets. And uh, President Taft, who notoriously weighed about 340 pounds, had a real taste for apple pie. Yes, uh, he loved he loved apples in general, and so when he would travel on the train, there was an African American chef named John Smeeds, and he was well known for his apple pie. But he was on a strict diet, and if the first lady or the White House physician was on the train, it was a no go for the president. But even when they were off the train, the staffers knew he was on a diet, and they knew they would hear it from either the first lady or the White House physician. So they actually formed this secret order of the apple pie. <laughs> in order to get some of John Smead's famous pie, but keep the president away from it. And the president knew what was going on and kind of played along. There is a time, I think, when Taft is on a train journey and there's no dining car attached to his train, to which he objects hugely. Right. So he wanted to get his grub on. And fortunately, the first lady and neither the first lady nor the White House physician were on the train. So he could actually eat what he wanted. Okay. And he wanted some filet mignon. But it was close to midnight. There was no dining car. So he orders the train to stop at a place in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, where they can actually add a dining car. He says, if I'm the president of the United States, I should be able to have a dining car attached to my train. And he gets one. He gets one. They make an unscheduled stop Mm -hmm. and they bring on a dining cart. Mm -hmm. And have to rouse some cook to make that filet mignon. And soon enough, he was eating filet mignon. Right. You muse in the book. Who was that cook that would have been roused out of sleep? We don't know the person's name, but it's likely an African-American. Because at that time period, African-Americans dominated the cooking profession, even on uh, the luxury trains. How would you say food trends at the White House have changed over 200 plus years? Well, in terms of the uh, VIP dining, the state dinners and other things, it's definitely had a French vibe. But as of late, since uh, the Clintons, when Hillary Clinton pushed really American regional food, it's really been a mix of high-end kind of celebration of American uh, regional food. But before that, it was pretty much French. There was a short time period from Theodore Roosevelt to Calvin Coolidge where we had these Swedish cooks who were dominating the White House. I don't know what that's about, but that was kind of the break. But it usually was a mix of French and Southern, and then we get to more American uh, regional celebrations. Food, specifically beans, caused a big controversy in Lyndon Johnson's administration. Uh, Here's some tape you found from the Johnson Library, where the president's personal secretary, Juanita Roberts, calls the cook, whom we've spoken about earlier, Zephyr Wright. And uh, Roberts questions Wright, very closely about what kinds of beans the president likes. So let's listen. Um, Zephyr Wright speaks first. You like pork and beans? You like pinto beans? 
You like uh, lima beans, green beans. That, that's green limas uh, are dried. Green limas. Green. Mm-hmm. Why did that conversation take place? Well, this is one of my favorite stories in the book. So the White House released a recipe for something called Pertinales River Chili. And that's a river that runs alongside the LBJ Ranch in central Texas. Now, if you know any Texans... Chile in Texas does not have any beans. And so when the White House releases this recipe, people across the country freak out. <laughs> and they want to be reassured that their president loves beans. So this was all just a spin control. And so they had to go to the source, the authoritative source on the subject. And that was Zephyr Wright. And it's funny because this is part of all of the uh, collection of the collection that of the audio tapes that Johnson had in the White House. So the recording system was actually put in under Kennedy. Johnson takes it up a large scale, and he actually recommends it to Nixon, and we know how that turned out. Yes, indeed, the doing in of Nixon. I want to play another bite here. So this is where Zephyr Wright describes a recipe we might find a little unusual, unappetizing today. (laughs) And the first voice in this case is uh, Johnson's private secretary, Juanita Roberts. Now, the green llamas, uh, the baby llamas, green baby llamas, Mm -hmm. uh, how do you prepare those for him? Just uh, in salted water and cook them and, and add a little uh, oleomargarine uh-huh. and pepper uh-huh. and cook them for a good long while until the juice in them is kind of thick. Yes. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, you used to use the Velveeta, but you don't do that anymore. Well, I do that uh, for parties. For parties. Uh-huh. uh-huh. We use uh, the Velveeta also uh, mushrooms. You know, you call it uh, lima beans with cheese and mushroom sauce. Oh, that's what you call it. Okay. And the Velveeta's for the fancy occasions. That's right. But that's a dish that the beans might be integrated into, lest anyone worry the president doesn't like beans. That's right. We have focused uh, some on drinks, much more on food. Let's go back to drinks for a bit. Uh, What stories did you find about alcohol in the White House and its role? Well, for whatever reason, we just don't like our presidents to drink too much. Yeah. Uh, maybe it has something to do with having the nuclear codes. I don't know. <laughs> so there's been a really uh, serious cat and mouse game in terms of presidents you know, saying that they will have drinks maybe for state dinners and other things, but not drink too much. One of my favorite stories involves uh, the Trumans. So the Trumans would want to have some old fashions before they would have dinner at the White House. So the White House butler, a guy named Alonzo Fields, who was there for a long time, would actually go ask what they want. So they wanted the old fashions. And it's a drink with bourbon, some sugar, water, and, and some bitters. So he made the first one. And Best Truman says, ah, this, could you make it a little drier? This is really too sweet. And he's like, all right. So he makes another version of it. She says, man, this tastes like fruit punch. Well, she didn't say man, but she says it tastes like fruit punch. And so Fields was so frustrated that he just served her straight bourbon. She takes one sip and says, that's how you make an old fashioned. <laughs> you simply serve bourbon. Yeah. Tell us about Arthur Brooks. Yeah. Arthur Brooks was an African-American man who was the White House wine cellar steward for a long time. And so he was a very trusted White House employee. And he was there for about 20 years. Uh, and when he dies... Just to show the affection that Calvin Coolidge had for him, Calvin Coolidge actually went to his deathbed and showed great concern for him and went to his funeral. Uh, so it just shows you how a lot of times these White House employees became friends with the president. And sometimes multiple presidents, right? right yes. So he worked there from roughly uh, Taft all the way to Coolidge. So a nice uh, span. And he was at the White House before but took a little break before returning during the Taft administration. It's not just in the White House that food has to be prepared. I think – Two of Air Force One. Right. You note that there are not friars 
aboard Air Force One. So there are often these kind of awful, <laughs> unfried French fries. Right. So what they have to do is pre-make things either in the White House mess, which is another cooking space in the White House besides the White House kitchen, or they would pre-make them at Andrews Air Force Base, where the, uh, Air Force One is, uh, stays before, when the president's not flying. And so they kind of finish things on uh, the plane. So a lot of the things are just kind of pre-baked, pre-fried, and then baked further on the plane. And the trade-off for soggy fries is that you don't bring a plane down with a an oil fryer. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. that would <laughs> be like tragic. A, a fair trade-off to right. me. Yeah, but the, the White House food has gotten a lot better, especially under the Obama administration. Um, before, people have complained about it. Um, but it's quite good now. That is on Air Force One. On Air Force One, mm-hmm. yes. Will President and Mrs. Trump have any say in who cooks in the White House? Absolutely. So the White House executive chef who runs the entire kitchen serves at the pleasure of the president. So right now, Christetta Comerford, uh, who's been there since the second term of George W. Bush, is holding over until President Trump decides what he wants to do. So he may retain her or he uh, may ask for someone else. And sometimes a president will ask for a private chef to come in and cook for just the family. That's what President Obama did with uh, Chef Sam Cass. Before that, the only other president to do that in recent memory was Lyndon Johnson with Zephyr Wright. Otherwise, the White House executive chef has done all the family cooking as well as cooking for guests. Do African-Americans continue to play a strong role in the White House as they did historically? Yes. So you have three African-Americans, at least on the White House kitchen staff, and you have a lot of African-Americans serving in the White House mess, which is a cooking space that serves mainly the top officials in the administration. And then you have people still serving on Air Force One. So there's still a lot of African-Americans in the mix. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Adrian Miller is the author of The President's Kitchen Cabinet, the story of African-Americans who have fed our first families, from the Washingtons to the Obamas, and now the Trumps. You'll find recipes for Thomas Jefferson's mac and cheese and Lyndon Johnson's prize chili at cprnews.org, along with an excerpt from the book. A near-death experience on a tubing hill was the push for our next guest to reconnect with his passion, using food to make the world a better place. Kimball Musk owns the Kitchen and Next Door restaurant concepts, which he started in Boulder. And he's on the brink of a big expansion, 50 new eateries by 2020 and well outside Colorado. Musk blends two concepts you don't normally think of together, chain restaurants and locally grown food. We spoke in March. You broke your neck on Valentine's Day 2010, paralyzed for a little while. You needed a risky surgery. Before the accident, you'd had a real passion for food, um, but had been firmly in the tech world along with your brother Elon. You're still active in that, I should say, sitting on the boards of SpaceX, Tesla. But how did how did the accident refocus you in that love of food? You know, it was a uh, it's really hard to describe how powerful um, having... A restart to your life is it, it truly is a restart when you're faced with paralysis I was uh, par- paralyzed on my left and um, getting worse every single day and then you know they did a surgery and I woke up the next morning and I could walk it was just uh, impossible to describe how powerful that was for me and so the restart was about 
to say, really to give myself permission to do what matters to me. And um, what, while I was part of very exciting companies, uh, what mattered to me was food and um, helping the world get to a, a, a real food culture. Uh, we had been doing our restaurants for a few years, but no scale. You know, we would, uh, I think, to your point around local, how do you scale local? And uh, it was, I just blocked it out. I was like, you just can't do it. And, um, and I, I want to ask you about that term, real food. Sure. It's one you use a lot. Sure. What does it mean? Yeah, it's a term uh, coined by uh, the author Michael Pollan. And the, ter- the term is basically food that you can trust to nourish your body, the farmer, and the planet. And the key word there is really trust. If you can trust the food you're eating, and unfortunately in today's world, you really don't have a lot of trust in the food system, and we shouldn't. It's, it's, quite, it's quite bad for us. Um, it's food that goes through the industrial method and it's a very high calorie, very low in nutrition. And instead of feeding the world, it makes a lot of people obese and di- and diabetics, which of course is a disaster for them and of course economically a disaster for the country. So uh, real food is actually taking a completely different tack and saying, wait a minute, let's have food that nourishes our body, that the farmer's happy to grow and that is more sustainable for the planet. And this is what you want to scale up in the form of these restaurants. I want to say that you actually trained as a French chef before moving to Boulder. Uh, You did open eventually the kitchen, and now they spin off next door. So five locations so far in Colorado. You can get a burger. Actually, we have seven in in Colorado. Seven. Okay. (laughs) Here I am underestimating. The growth growth is so rapid. Uh, Get a burger, a salad. Uh, locally sourced ingredients, and you do plan to expand the next door concept. So, as I said, opening 50 restaurants by 2020. Uh, interesting that your focus is the Midwest and the Southeast in particular. Yeah. I call it the heartland. So, basically, we go to the part of America where they love us. I mean, we opened in Memphis, and the response has been extraordinary, even more popular than our Boulder or Denver restaurants, huh. which are very popular. Um, but they also they don't have a they have some great food culture, but the real food restaurants are few and far between in those communities. So we're excited for the the opportunity as well as the impact we'll have on on local farmers and bringing real food to those communities. Places like Iowa, Tennessee, Arkansas. Yeah, uh, it occurs to me that there's some overlap there between the places you'd like to open real food restaurants and where a lot of the industrial farming, as you call it, occurs. Sure, that's exactly right. Now we actually are so we work in uh, in Memphis and we're surrounded by cotton farmers which are, which are not even food at all. Uh, although most corn farmers are not farming food either, they're farming ethanol and so forth. But the the what we're able to do with with these farms is have them. These are very big farms. So they'll take a thirty five thousand acre farm and they'll make a hundred acres growing real food, and then they'll grow to two hundred and fifty acres and they'll open five hundred acres. We personally are working with the local foundations to do a 208-acre organic farm on our restaurant's property in uh, in Memphis. Is the point that wherever a restaurant opens, you also have to have your own farming operation or very strong farming relationships? We don't want to do our own farming at all. Okay. Uh, we do it only because in that particular case, it was the only way to make it work. Mm. We love supporting farmers. Our our mission is is to bring real food to everyone, and we're going to do that through restaurants. We also have our learning gardens where we teach kids about food. Um, we have a, a, a startup that trains entrepreneurs about indoor farming to do to do real food farming that way. 
we don't want to get into farming. We want to support farmers. What are some of the other challenges of scaling this nationwide? I mean, do you, do you want to be as big as Applebee's or Friday's? Our goal is to bring real food to everyone. So uh, I think they would be thinking small. Okay. <laughs> Those major chains would be thinking small. And, and so what, what are some of the other challenges of, of scaling up in that manner? Uh, well, I think the most important challenge for us is people. And I mean it in terms of, you know, we want to find great farmers, we want to find great managers, we want to find great servers, uh, line cooks. We cook from scratch, what we do it the old-fashioned way, um, and we need, pe- we need people, really good people. So we're always looking for great people to join the team. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Kimball Musk. Yes, of that Musk family. He lives in Boulder, and he and his partners uh, started the kitchen and next door restaurant concepts, which they hope to scale up big time. You know, I want to say that a lot of Colorado restaurateurs have this focus on local ingredients. There's Alex Seidel at Fruition in Denver, Eric Skoken at Black Cat in Boulder. Heck, the Mercury Cafe in Denver has been doing this forever. Um, it also Potage made, as well. Potage, Potage is a phenomenal yeah, local restaurant. Long lists and, and well outside the metro as well, some of these. Uh, but I think of another Colorado startup, Chipotle. Sure. And, you know, again, big scale and a focus, as as they tell it, on a fresh and often local ingredients. Did, are you, in some ways, in reinventing the wheel here? Did Chipotle... No, I actually work with Chipotle. So I uh-huh. sit on their board, and um, they are the greatest uh, real food chain out there in terms of fast casual. The difference between us and Chipotle is we're a gathering place for generally millennials, but millennials also bring their kids or their parents or their grandparents. But we're trying to recreate the gathering place that we've kind of lost along the way. Um, While Applebee's and TGI Fridays still exist, they don't really serve that community very well. We want to be the gathering place for millennials. uh, And our next door restaurants in particular are just amazing places to sit, gather with your friends and eat real food. Okay, recently the kitchen, the name, has been embroiled in a legal fight. Sure. You say you have the trademark rights to use the name, but Wolfgang Puck objects since uh, he he feels it's, you know, pretty generic. He says he has the right to use it in a Chicago eatery, the kitchen by Wolfgang Puck. Will that at at all be an obstacle obstacle to growth? I mean, I'm just really sad about it because Wolfgang and I know each other and he knows what we're doing and we're doing a lot of really good work, especially with our nonprofit, working with kids and food. And, and the kitchen name is means a lot more than just a restaurant. And it's pretty sad. So for me, I just I just want to talk to him and sit down and chat with him. And since he's decided to do that, he's cut off all communication. So it really is a bizarre and strange, sad situation, to be honest. Is making a trademark of the name The Kitchen, though, uh, a strange decision, given that's such a prevalent term? Um. No, I think it's actually great. I think we, we we've we've become known as the kitchen in so many ways, not just the not just the restaurant, but the work we do beyond that. So I I think it's a it's a very powerful name and, and trademark. So you mentioned uh, that this has a nonprofit element. The kitchen community has built gardens in uh, hundreds of schools. Three hundred and fifty now. Yeah, yeah it's pretty amazing. I think fifty in Denver. Yeah, yeah, another one fifty in Chicago. They're in Memphis, Pittsburgh, Los Angeles. How do they differ from gardens that may have been in schools? For years. No, absolutely. I love that question. So, school school gardens have been around for a hundred years. Right. Um, and they have been very impactful. They they help kids connect to food. They help uh, teachers learn, teach outside, get kids connected to you know improve their test scores. 
The problem with school gardens is they were usually in the corner of the schoolyard. They'd often uh, the facilities department would put a fence around them. They'd be hard to maintain, and they would often fall apart just because they're made out of wood. You know, just normal reasons, not not even uh, uh, operational reasons. But operationally, they're quite hard to manage. You've got to have a garden team. You've got to have people who are dedicated to it for for a long time. Teachers would retire. Parents, kids would graduate. Just normal things and. We created a truly scalable version of a school garden, and it's called a learning garden. It's built on the playground instead of in the corner. It's right next to the playground. Um, it's a it's a raised up. It's made out of recyclable polyethylene, which is very a very modern day uh, technology used for playgrounds. It's a it'll last forever basically. Um, it's raised up, so it's ADA compliant. Uh, it's super easy to teach in. Teachers teachers are trained to teach science, but actually they use it to it's a beautiful day outside. Let's go read a book with the kids. And it's such a wonderful place to do that. Uh, the kids love to play in it. It serves both as a, as, a, as a classroom but also an extension to the playground. So because there's no fence, we don't allow any fences around them. Kids can enjoy them during recess and, and after school. And uh, the other thing that's amazing is because it's this beautiful permanent addition to the school without a fence around it, parents can use it in the afternoons and weekends. So we get one in seven parental involvement in a school, which is a very high number, because these gardens are so easy to use, and uh, parents love to get involved. And the question of tending to them long term and making sure that there is yeah, sustainability. Yeah, we we actually build a local team. So in Colorado, we have an awesome team of garden educators, a regional director that helps continue to raise funds for the learning gardens, as well as uh, garden maintenance folks that partner with Denver Public Schools and and other school districts to make sure they're maintained and looked after. Just like you would look after a basketball court or you look after a classroom, uh, they need to be maintained and looked after. But it's not that expensive. It's It's just about having the right systems in place. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and uh, Kimball Musk is with us from Boulder. He is uh, one of the founders of the restaurant concepts, The Kitchen and Next Door, which are on the precipice of some major growth. I do want to talk about another project. Heaven forbid you should just have one project, Kimball Musk, <laughs> um, uh, called Square Roots. Sure. So the company invests in startups focused on growing fresh fruit and vegetables in cities. Yeah. And the idea is to do that in shipping containers. Yeah. How does that work? Well, the idea came to me from, I, I was a, when I was 19 years old, I, t- I signed up for a painting franchise where I painted houses. And you get a neighborhood and you paint houses, you run a business, you get a small business loan, and, and you do it under a, under a brand. It was called College Pro. And while I never wanted to be a painter, um, it taught me how to be an entrepreneur, and it gave me the, the, the basis to, to, to build the businesses that I have built since then. In fact, since I was 19 and I took that opportunity, I've never worked for a single person in my life. And so it's just been this amazing gift that I got being an, learning how to be an entrepreneur in a very straightforward business. And when I found out about these storage containers where you can grow the equivalent of two acres of greens inside a storage container, it's about a $100,000 top-line revenue business. Not a big business, but if you're... 18 to 24 years old, and you're in school, it's about 20 hours a week you dedicate towards this business, and you can earn anywhere from 20 to 40K for, for the year. It is really a business, so you could even lose money if you don't know what you're doing, but you sell direct to consumer. You, uh, uh, we train you on how to hire and fire people. We train you on how to run a P&L, how to sell door-to-door, or in many cases, we sell to, to desk-to-desk. We actually sell into office buildings. P&L profit and loss statement. Pardon? B&L being a profit and loss statement. Yeah. Yeah, P&L. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. It's exactly, absolutely sorry. And um, 
And so they learn how to run a business. Now, they'll do it only for a year, and then they'll graduate and they'll go do something else. But we've trained them on, on what food is, how to grow real food, and how to run a business. So isn't that exciting how many people will unleash into the world uh, uh, with a real food background and entrepreneurship training? Uh, so we can be more excited about it. It's also a great business because we're building a, the Square Roots brand, direct-to-consumer brand, that is going to be, I think, the one of the new exciting brands of the of the real food future. And why the why the trailer? Is that just because of why the of, container? Uh, yeah, exactly. Is that just because of the capacity constraints of the city? No, it's actually because it, it's a business in a box, literally. Oh. And you need to make sure that you for these young kids, you keep the business as simple as possible. What about growing protein in the city, though? Um, we don't do that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there, there are some ways to do whole that. Whole other challenge there. Whole, whole other challenge, exactly. Why don't we wrap up with a question of trust? So you've brought this up. Sure. Yeah. That people should have more faith in their food. Yeah. What does that mean in terms of, of changes that need to occur in your mind? Well, I actually think trust is the currency of our generation across the board, not just in food. Um, we have been uh, sold up a river, I think, in across many industries and as the internet's come along, we've discovered that a lot of these businesses are not as uh, they're not as good of a citizen as we'd like as we had hoped they would they were. And the same applies to food. So for us, bringing trust back into the food system is critical. So people trust the food to nourish their bodies, trust the food to nourish the farmer, uh, trust the food to nourish the planet. And we bring bringing trust back into the system is what gets me up in the morning and. Uh, I hope we have a future in a, in a few years where all of us, uh, wealthy, middle class, uh, um, lower income, all of us trust the food that we eat that to, to look after ourselves. Lower income, I think that's a critical point. Yeah. Because there's often an association between good food, real food as you call it, and expensive food. Yeah, I, I think that's a total, total crock. I think that... that if you want to roast a chicken and have some vegetables with your instead of a family of four, that's going to cost you about ten bucks. If you want to go to McDonald's and you have a fam- family of four, that's going to be about twenty twenty eight dollars. So it's not about money. I definitely think we've lost um, a connection to food. We've lost an understanding of cooking, and so we have to bring that back. Uh, thanks for being with us. We appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. Boulder restaurateur and entrepreneur Kimball Musk. He's expanding his next-door restaurant concepts. Musk will also open his newest eatery, Hedge Row, in Cherry Creek later this month. When the Colorado Rockies are at home, concession stands at Coors Field are full of hot dogs and other ballpark fare. Well, what happens to the leftovers? My colleague Andrea Dukakis learned that the nonprofit We Don't Waste actually collects the uneaten food. She met up with the group, first at its headquarters in Denver's Rhino neighborhood last July. So we have three trucks. We have a big one that can take very large loads of food, pallets of food. Tim Sanford is the director of operations. That means he keeps the trains, actually the trucks, running. Like on this sunny Thursday morning. We have a small refrigerated truck, 10 foot. It's very well suited. We Don't Waste picks up excess food from sports arenas, the convention center, and other large venues around Denver and Boulder. They take food that was prepared or is about to expire. Nothing that was served to a customer. 
This morning, when Sanford opens the truck, it smells a lot like ripened fruit, which the team picked up from a different venue the day before. We have a pallet of bananas and a pallet of uh, all-natural juice. That's about a ton of bananas, Sanford estimates, which he said would have otherwise gone into the landfill by the airport. It's perfectly edible, good food. Sanford climbs into the truck and heads for the baseball park. He says the food We Don't Waste collects ends up in cities across the Front Range and as far away as South Dakota. Working with the Lakota tribe up in the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, they don't have enough food for their residents up there. Sanford stops at the security gate at Coors Field, then drives up to the receiving docks. We meet up with We Don't Waste founder and executive director Arlen Preblood and head inside. This hallway is a long hallway. On each side are large walk-ins that store everything from the bread to beer to uh, soft drinks. I mean, if I open this, this cooler right here, they've got strawberries, they've got pastry. There's actually Jose Cuervo tequila in here. We Don't Waste won't take the Jose Cuervo, but they do wheel out a nearly six-foot-tall cart. It's filled with dozens of aluminum pans. They're wrapped tightly, so the contents don't spoil. Together, they add up to nearly 1,500 servings of food. We're going to uh, cut open the ground wrap here. Holds all the food together so it doesn't fall. The team loads them into the truck and finds out what's inside. Asparagus and pot roast. French fries. Cauliflower. Barbecue chicken. Not your typical ballpark cuisine. Sanford says this food is from the luxury suites at Coors, where VIPs eat. Aramark runs concessions at Coors and formed the partnership with We Don't Waste. Before that, this leftover food would have been thrown in the trash, says Brian Arp. He's general manager of Coors Field for Aramark. We love the program. We've been trying for years to figure out a partnership that works. It's great to have finally a success. ARP says it's most valuable when rain causes games to start late, which often means fans go home early or don't show up at all. Fewer fans means more excess food. With the truck loaded, I head outside with Executive Director Arlen Preblood. Is there anything you won't take from the ballpark? Sure, we look for obviously high nutritious value product, and that includes protein, that includes vegetables, fruit. There are items that we don't take, such as popcorn. Do you take hot dogs from the place? Certainly, we do take hot dogs. One item that we don't take is is bread, because there, quite frankly, there's an overabundance of bread in the city, and rather than waste it, they have an outlet that they can take that bread and compost it or feed it to uh, farm animals. If you're delivering something like hot dogs, how do you repurpose them? They don't have the buns. Sometimes we'll make suggestions to the people that are cooking at facilities. If we delivered a number of hot dogs and they don't have any buns, you can put them into chili. You can chop them up, okay? You can serve them as snacks with toothpicks. And the fact of the matter is, it's good protein. How do you know that the organizations that you're donating to actually use the food and don't allow it to go to waste. When we deliver food, my staff generally looks around to make sure that the product that we've been delivering is being used. And if it's not, then we'll ask them. We delivered 
product to you last week and it's still sitting in your refrigeration, you haven't used it, is there some reason? Was the food bad? And generally the answer is we forgot about it. And if there's a situation where they're not utilizing the food, then we'll back away for a while until they catch up, until they realize that they have to use the product that we're delivering. The other aspect of that is that we try our best to find the best use of the products that we have so that we don't confront them with situations where they have to waste that food. What did these organizations do before they had an opportunity to get your food? So I can give you a perfect example. I received a letter in June from a small agency that's located in Federal Heights. And the letter, and I'll paraphrase it, said that when we were generally open, we would serve about 100 families a week. You began delivering to us fresh produce, fresh dairy, and prepared products. We went from 100 families a week to now 500 families a week. Before, they either had to close their doors because they didn't have food. If their budgets allow, they may have to go on to the open market and purchase product. And what are they buying? They're buying what their dollar will stretch best to get. Having done this for a while now, I wonder if you go to events and are preoccupied with food waste there. Do you notice it and does it disturb you? Food waste always disturbs me, whether it's at home or when you go to an event and you see the products being left on the table or servings are too large for the people that are there. And I think it's a question of making the community aware that there's a major issue in this country where 40% of all the products that we produce go to waste. It gets wasted at the distribution. It, it even gets wasted at the farm because we have these artificial measurements of how carrots are supposed to look and how a tomato is supposed to look. And then it goes to the distributor who makes a determination of who can use this. Then when it gets on the shelves of the stores, okay, people make a decision of how much they're going to buy, but they don't always use everything they buy. I do know that some farms donate food that they don't sell, uh, produce that they don't sell, but I guess not all of them do that. Many do, and we'd like to begin to address that with the farmers. It seems to me that in the Depression era, there was a lot of awareness about food waste, and people were very careful. And then there was perhaps a period where people didn't think about it. And now we've sort of gone back to that old way of being concerned about all of the food that we consume and waste. Well, you're right. We've become a nation of abundance. And when you become abundant, you sometimes forget how to conserve your assets and we overspend in many different ways, including with food. In the seven years that I've been involved in this, I've seen the awareness of food waste and food insecurity begin to boil up to a point where people are taking more notice of what food waste is all about. Is there anything individuals can do if they come to the ballpark to prevent food waste? So when you come to the ballpark, okay, you should eat what you get, and it's a balancing act because if you only eat what you get, then the providers of that food would only produce what they need. But it's like any good operation. The last thing this ballpark, Coors Field, wants to have happen is people walk up to a concession stand and say, we're out of food. So they, they have to absolutely 
produce more than is expected. We benefit from that. In this case, homeless youth will benefit from the food from Coors Field this week. After we pick it up, I take a ride to Soft's Place, a day shelter about a mile from the ballpark. As the We Don't Waste crew unloads the pans, I talked with Doyle Robinson. He co-founded Soft's Place and serves as executive director. We provide a place for three kids, homeless, runaways. And where would these uh, kids normally eat if they're not eating here? They're begging for it on the, on the 16th Street Mall. Uh, you know, you come out of a restaurant and they're asking you for your leftovers. What did you do for food before you got it from here? We used to serve hamburger helper that we get from the uh, food bank without a hamburger. There's no money exchange with recipients or food donors. We Don't Waste operates solely off of philanthropic contributions. The group is small, just six employees, but it's the only organization operating at this scale in Colorado. Preblood says they've saved and distributed nearly 11 million servings this year. He hopes to eventually have a warehouse to store food overnight. That, he says, would help the operation get more food to more people. CPR's Andrea Dukakis reported that story with producer Rachel Estabrook. And that's our Colorado Matters culinary special. Before we go, though, a song about a smoothie. Colorado native Bay Bryan shows off his theatrical vocals and classical piano training in his ode to a blended beverage. Here's Superfood Smoothie. Whoa, whoa, that food looks funky monkey. Why don't you just throw that out of your hand And I will try to make you understand Make you understand Oh, the saying goes You are what you eat So if you choose to eat funky things You will be funky too Hey, you could enjoy every day of your life If you just picked up your fork and knife and chose to eat wisely Instead of eating so shyly Hey, how about a superfood smoothie That'll go down so smoothly With rock cacao on the daily Hey, to give us our energy How about a superfood smoothie That'll make you super groovy How that maca does move me Maca, maca, maca love dream What is on your mind? Better not be McDonald's french fries They will clog your arteries How about some healthy salad greens like my baby spinach leaves we can make some sweet kale chips tonight Colorado native Bay Bryan with Superfood Smoothie That's Colorado Matters I'm Ryan Warner